Good morning. Great to see you. So as Ron said, continuing the series in this amazing, brilliant letter to the Philippians uh, that Paul wrote around 62 AD, about 12 years after establishing a church in in Philippi. And we're going to be looking at chapter 2 today. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And um, really, it's in, this, it's in this passage that we're looking at today, particularly the second half, verses 6 to 11, that we that we come to the, what I think is the centerpiece of this letter, around which everything in this letter, all the things that Paul says, revolves around this, what Paul tells us here in verses 6 to 11 about Jesus. So up to this point, very brief recap, um, it's been about Paul's amazing attitude to his circumstances, because he finds himself in prison for preaching the gospel. Adverse circumstances, not of his choosing, but his attitude's remarkable because he sees it as a good thing, because the gospel is advancing, Just take that off for a minute, please. Thank you. The gospel is advancing. And he trusts God just so much with everything he is and everything he does and uh, everything he has. He just trusts God. And he says, you know, to me, to live is Christ. That is my everything, my reason for being Christ, the gospel. That's what I live for. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And um, his instruction that we heard last week to the Philippians and indeed to us is to live lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we live our lives is really, really important. And yet we've called this series Reflecting Jesus to the World. Because that's the call on our lives as Christians. That's what Paul does. It's the call on our lives as followers of Jesus to show the world what he is like through the way we live our lives, through the words that we speak. It's what Paul is doing. It's what he's encouraging the Philippians to do. But it's in this passage today that we see exactly what we are to reflect, just what it is that we are to reflect to the world. And, you know, just as a mirror can only reflect what is in its sight, what is there in front of it, and the clearest reflection, the biggest reflection is of what is closest up to it. Well, so my, my hope for us today, my prayer for us today is as we look at this glorious passage of Scripture is that we're able to draw near to Jesus just as he's already drawn near to us and to have him right in front of us, to turn towards him, to have him filling our vision so that he is what we reflect. And everything else in life is really just background noise. And so we're not just trying to act like Jesus and and then failing all the time, but we're allowing ourselves to be changed from the inside out through being in his transforming presence. So let's, let's get into this. Paul starts off this section of the letter Uh, with these words in verses 1 to 4. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And we can read that and we can hear that and think, well, that, yeah, that, I can, that's really good advice, Paul. I can see how that's good, that works, you know, put others before ourselves. That, actually, the world would be a much better place if we all did that. Yeah, good advice, good advice. But you know what? To understand the sheer impact of these words that Paul is writing to the listeners at the time, to the Philippians at the time, we've got to understand the context because actually these words have a lot more impact than this. We've got to understand the society into which these words are being written. Actually, even to understand why is Paul in prison 
for preaching the good news, the gospel. Why, you know, what's that about? Well, we've got to understand the context, the society of the day. And we've touched on that earlier in the series. We've touched on aspects of this context. But I'm just going to spend some time now um, bringing some, some important background, an explanation of some important historical context that will help us to see the impact of what Paul is saying here. So Philippi, as a place, as a town, was established in the 4th century BC, and it was named after King Philip of Macedonia, because he had taken over that region, Um, and he gave it his name because it was an important place. It was wealthy, there were gold mines there, it was also strategically really important, it was near the sea, and it was on a, a really important trade route in the ancient world. So Philippi is a prestigious place, a wealthy place, it's an important place. Fast forward about 300 years to the Roman era, and in 44 BC, Julius Caesar is assassinated by Brutus and Cassius. Then a couple of years later, in 42 BC, there's a defining battle at Philippi. Because Mark Antony and Octavian, who was Julius Caesar's son, later became known as Caesar Augustus, Octavian became known as Caesar Augustus, they defeated Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. So Philippi is now a very significant place for the Roman Empire. And in the years to come, it would become a Roman colony, which is very different from just being an occupied territory. It it means it's like a piece of Rome in a foreign land. It's a piece of Rome in Macedonia in terms of the laws, in terms of the way it's governed, in terms of the rights of the citizens there. That's a significant bit of context because that's the context into which Paul writes, a Roman colony 100 years later on. Now, when Julius Caesar was assassinated... In 44 BC, there was a comet that appeared in the sky around that time, and it was there, visible, for seven nights in a row. And the Romans' interpretation of this was that this was actually Caesar's soul ascending into heaven. That's what this comet was, Caesar's soul ascending into heaven. So the Roman Senate declared that Julius Caesar was, in fact, God. They deified him. After his death, Julius Caesar was God, which makes Caesar Augustus the son of God and every Roman Empire after him, the Son of God. And he, Caesar Augustus, was described in terms like this. He was described as being the divine king of salvation, the name by which all will be saved, the saviour of the world. And he, so this was like the Roman gospel. This is, this is the Roman gospel, the Roman good news, that under the rule of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God, the, that salvation would spread to the world. It was called the Pax Romana. Roman peace. The idea that spreading this Roman culture across the world would bring peace and stability, which sounds really good, except that their version of peace wasn't the absence of war. It was the violent oppression of anyone who stood in their way, of anyone who showed even the slightest opposition to the Roman Empire. So it was, if you like, it was an imposed peace, which sounds a funny thing to say. It was an imposed peace, and it was imposed through a lot of bloodshed. Now, in Philippi as was the case throughout the Roman Empire, you would have to swear allegiance to Caesar. So a Roman soldier could stop you at any time and say, pay homage to Caesar, and you would have to use these two words, Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. So we can kind of see why Paul is in prison, because he's preaching a gospel that says Jesus is Lord. Now, Roman society in was, was heavily class-based, heavily class-based. You could broadly divide it into two categories. So you had the honestiores, or the honourable ones. I hope you're enjoying your history lesson here. Um, the honourable ones, which was the ruling elite, 
the, 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 the landowners, the wealthy middle classes, the people of influence. And in Philippian society, that accounted for about 2% of the population. The honestiores. Then you had the humiliores, the lowly ones. The rest. The 98%. But even within those two broad categories, there are several subcategories. So, for example, within the humiliores, you had ordinary Roman citizens, and that was a status that came with certain rights. You had freemen who were inferior to Roman citizens. They had some rights, but not the rights of a Roman citizen. And then the lowest of the low were the slaves, the personas mediocribus, mediocre person, nobodies, no rights. So if you're a Roman citizen, you have certain rights. Even though you're not in the upper echelons of society, you have legal rights. The right to a fair trial, the, the right to not be beaten in public, the right to not be subject to the cruder and more horrific methods of execution like crucifixion. Because that was reserved for slaves and for traitors. Because it was considered to be the most painful way, the most disgraceful, shameful, humiliating way that you could possibly die. So there's this obsession with status in that society. And Philippi is reckoned to be a particularly status-obsessed city in the ancient world. So this is what's ingrained in the psyche of the people in this, in this city. This, that life, what life is about, is climbing the ladder. Often at the expense of others and avoiding at all costs going down that social ladder. That's not something you would ever look to bring on yourself. And you know, even within those categories... I just mentioned there were other categories, categories within categories. So there were different categories of slaves. So even as a slave, you'd have the chance to go up a rung and be able to look down on somebody who's on the rung below you. So this is what life is about. That is what is ingrained in the mindset of the people there, a striving to climb the ladder in whatever way you can, an absolute fear of going down the social ladder. And so that's the society they're in. And there are certain status symbols which which indicate if you're a person of honor, a person of wealth, a person of status. So, for example, your name, your name, your title, and particularly if something's named after you. I mean, Philippi itself is named after somebody, King Philip. But then Augustus, later on, he kind of extended the name of Philippi and inserted his own name into it. So your name, your title was a, a status symbol. Your position at events, so at a banquet, where you're seated indicated how honourable you were, how high up the ladder you were. So everybody wanted to be in the place of honour next to the host. That's where you wanted to be. That's the, it's the it's race for honour that is going on, a race for status. What you wore, your clothes, was an indication as to your social status. Only certain people were allowed to wear togas. Okay, you might think it was the, the lower classes, it wasn't, it was the upper classes. You're only allowed to wear togas if you're at a certain level. So this is the context into which Paul is writing. It's a status-obsessed Roman colony that is thriving on the gospel of Caesar. So let's consider those words that he says again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So Paul's using this language of community and togetherness, oneness, unity. And it seems that he's addressing a bit of an issue that's arisen in the Philippian church. We know that there is rich and there is poor and there is everything in between in this Philippian church. And it seems like Paul's appealing to them to be one in spirit, one in purpose, be of one mind, to be united. But really, how does that work in this society that I've just described? How does that work? Well, Paul goes on to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition. This is what this society is all about, is selfish ambition. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, can value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Humility is a dirty word in that society. You don't talk about humility. It's about honor. It's about status. Consider others better than yourselves. I mean, effectively, Paul is telling them, elevate others above you. Take yourself down a few rungs and elevate others above you. Look to their interests. Put them ahead of you in your pecking order. I mean, hopefully we can see just how utterly countercultural these words are, how shocking they are in the context of that society. And clearly, Paul feels the need to remind the church of this. So maybe the culture, that culture is creeping in to the Philippian church. So these words that Paul says have real, genuine shock value. And we can easily miss that if we don't understand the context, the society of the day. But if we think about it, really, how different is their context to our context today? How different is it really? I mean, we don't have, we don't have um, categories of status that are so clearly defined, so clearly demarcated, but we still have an overwhelming desire for status in our society. I think we'd agree. There's this overwhelming desire for status. We still have massive, massive wealth and power disparity. Top 2%, well, is it any different in our society? Power, wealth with the top 1%, 2% in this world? We still have a version of slavery. We have modern slavery where people are forcibly stripped of their rights. So let's not look at society of 2,000 years ago. Of course, there have been lots of changes. There are lots of things which are different about our society. But let's not look at their society and kid ourselves that we are somehow morally superior, that we are somehow this advanced society, this advanced civilization. It's nonsense. And in Paul's appeal that he makes for humility, he he uncovers the root cause of, of this, why society is as it was then and now, and it's pride. Opposite of humility, pride. Pride has been the human problem forever. Pride is what destroyed us in the beginning. It's what's destroying us ever since. It's at the root of all the world's problems. Pride is what leads to greed. It's what leads to war. It's what leads to corrupt governments and dictators trying to cling on to power at any cost. It's pride. It all comes down to pride. But at an individual level as well, pride has a massive effect on our lives. Pride is what drives people to be successful at any cost, to be ruthless in that, to, to, to get to the top, to be successful and to be seen as great and, and please see me as great and to climb this ladder and tread on many people's fingers on the way. Now you might think, well, that's, I, I, that's not really me. I don't have that kind of drivenness. Okay. Do you ever compare yourself with somebody else though? I think this is something we all do. It's rooted in pride. Why do we compare ourselves to others? Sometimes it's to appeal directly to our pride. It's to make us feel better about ourselves. At least I'm a better parent than... Have you seen their child? (laughs) Makes me feel good. Makes me feel like I'm not making such a mess of things. It's pride, isn't it? But actually, sometimes we compare ourselves to others in the opposite way. It makes us feel like a sense of failure. You know, oh my goodness, such a terrible parent. Their children know the Bible so much better than ours. We need to do something. We need to, we need to get them into intensive Bible lessons. It's appealing to our pride. Why do we feel a sense of failure? Because we don't want to be seen as a failure. We want to be seen as good. And of course, when we start going down that road, we compare ourselves to others in a way that causes us to be bitter and resentful at their success. You know, oh, look at little Miss Perfect. What a perfect little family they are. Oh, my child's in bed by seven every night. And, they, and she only eats organic. Oh, good for you. You wait till she's a teenager. 
You wait till you have another one who doesn't sleep. In fact, I hope you have. <laughs> it, it brings out the worst in us. It's rooted in pride, comparing ourselves to others. Pride is what leads to mockery and scornfulness and contempt for others. If, we, if you remember back to the series we did on Proverbs last summer, Stuart Reed, I think it was, who spoke on that, the, the mocker, the scoffer that is identified in Proverbs. And he said how prevalent this is in our society. It's everywhere in our society. Mockery, contempt, putting other people down. Why do we put people down? It's so that we can feel good about ourselves. It's so that we feel like we are above somebody. It's pride. Pride leads to defensiveness and inability to admit when you're wrong. An inability to be taught. I hope some of us are recognizing some of these things in ourselves. Pride leads to self-absorption. Always thinking about ourselves, how we come across the world, how we're perceived by others. And that can show itself in a couple of different ways. It can show itself in the obvious kind of bragging, boasting, arrogant, uh, self-promoting, superiority complex. Look how great I am, and I want the world to see how great I am. But equally, it can show itself as a self-deprecating, self-loathing, inferiority complex. It's still self-absorption. It's still eyes focused inwards on yourself. The focus is all on you. And whether you think you're God's gift to the world or you're caught in the misery of self-loathing and self-hatred, the effect is the same. And it's that your world, your universe, just shrinks down and shrinks down till there's only room in it for one person. And, and you're listening only to the voice of one person and it's not an objective voice. It's not a healthy place to be. Self-absorption. And it's rooted in pride. So pride has lots of different manifestations, and we will, be, uh, we will be subject to different ones of those in different measures, depending on who we are, our personalities, many different manifestations. But pride ultimately has one goal, which is self-glorification. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The Greek word translated vain conceit is kenodoxia, which means empty glory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty glory, or out of being glory empty. Being empty of glory, hungry for glory, honour, respect, because you don't feel like you have it. You know, I I don't feel like my life counts for much. I don't feel like I count for much, so I need assurance that I do. I need assurance that I do count. I need to feel important. I need to feel significant. I need people to praise me and to like me and to, to think I'm special. It's why we find it so difficult to do hidden good deeds, hidden acts of service, because we tend to find ways of slipping it into conversation, don't we? You know, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm really sorry we couldn't meet up. Uh, It's just I was down at the church putting the chairs away after an event because they needed people, and I was available, so I thought I would go and help out. You know, we tend to find ways of letting people know the good thing that we've done because we want them to think what a good and humble person I am. You know, we want them to think well of us. Well, where does this come from? This hunger for glory, this hunger for honor and respect and recognition. Well, it it comes from the fact that deep down, we all know, all all human beings know that there's something wrong. There's something missing. Actually, we were made for a different kind of life. We were made for a different kind of world. We were made for glory. We were made to live forever and to be in the presence of God and to know his favor and to completely depend on him. But at the same time, we're aware that, that we're dying. And that we're fading and there is something missing. We've lost something. We've lost that sense of glory because we turned away from God. We we look for this sense of glory, this sense of significance and security that we can only find in God. We look for it in other places. We try to be our own saviour. We put ourselves in the place of God, not acknowledging our dependence on him. That is the essence of pride. 
And it was, it was the original sin that saw Satan cast out of heaven. And it's at the core, it's at the root of all of our sin and all of our problems. Pride. So Paul appeals for humility. The opposite of pride. Humility is opposed to every form, every manifestation of pride. Humility is opposed to that self-absorption. Humility causes us to take our eyes off ourselves and to look to the interests of others. Humility means that you can be content with circumstances, whatever they are, good or bad. It means you can be content with being imperfect. It means you can be content to be corrected and taught. It's opposed to all those things that pride brings out in us. It can be tempting sometimes to think that humility is having a low opinion of yourself. It's not that at all. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. It's not about being self-deprecating and self-loathing and showing false modesty and constantly putting yourself down. It's just about not noticing yourself. Because when you're humble, you're not hungry for that glory and honor and respect and recognition. The needs of others do become more important to you. It's humility. But how do the Philippians become humble in this society? How does that work? How do we become humble in the society we live in and knowing how flawed we are? How do we become humble? Because you can't work on humility directly. That's the problem. You realize that if, if true humility is about, not, is about thinking of ourselves less, then as we try to make ourselves humble, we're thinking of ourselves more. Awareness of humility destroys humility. The most humble person in the world is not aware that they are humble because when you become aware of your humility, you become proud of it. So how does, this, how does this work? You know, when we try to work on humility, all we can really work on is the appearance of humility, the appearance of not being proud. And so Paul knows this, and he directs our attention elsewhere. He says, don't, don't focus, you, you can't do this in your own strength. Don't focus in on yourself, focus on Jesus. Let yourself be completely absorbed by him. And so he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or other versions say something to be grasped rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross Paul's quoting a a poem or a hymn of the day. We don't know exactly where this came from, but probably it was known to the Philippians. It might have been a song that they sung. And it's like Paul saying, consider what these words really mean. You might know these words, but now let's consider what they actually mean. Because again, these words are shocking. Absolutely shocking in this society that's obsessed with climbing the ladder. Top of the ladder is Caesar himself. That's the top rung of the ladder. Caesar himself who has been compared with God. But Paul draws some stunning contrasts here between Jesus and Caesar. Because Caesar is just a man who became a God. Whereas Jesus is God who became a man. And God is not just a title that was given to Jesus. He is in very nature God is what it tells us. In very nature God. In his essence. In his substance. In his whole being. He is God. He always has been. He always will be. Caesar was declared a man, declared to be a God when he died. No involvement from himself in that. But Jesus has always been God and he voluntarily, he chose to take on human flesh. It's a massive contrast. Not even in the same, same ballpark. Another contrast. Caesar exerted power by humbling others. Jesus surrendered his power and he humbled himself. Totally upside down. 
in this society. Shocking. Jesus humbled himself. He, he, not just that he was humbled, he humbled himself. He made the choice to voluntarily go down that social ladder right to the very bottom. It says he took the very nature of a servant. Greek word for servant is doulos, which means slave. Jesus voluntarily became a slave. Personus mediocribus. A, a nothing, a nobody. He was found in appearance as a man, it tells us. I said earlier about the importance of clothing, what you wear. Well, Jesus was found in appearance as a man. He dressed way outside his category. He dressed way, way below his category. Now, Jesus never stopped being God, but he did choose to deny himself those things that he deserved as God. He made himself nothing, it says. Other versions of the Bible translate that as he emptied himself. And there's been century upon century upon century of debate and discussion and argument about what exactly that means. He emptied himself, and there's a big mystery to this here, but what he didn't empty himself of was his divinity. He never emptied himself of of his divinity. He never stopped being God. Rather, he emptied himself, the whole of who he was, into the limitations of human likeness, however that works. 100% God, 100% man. There's a mystery to this. But this is the God who immersed himself into our world, who knows what it is like for the very lowest in society. If you feel like you're there, the lowest, if you feel like you're completely without hope, you're completely disenfranchised, there's nothing this world can offer you. Jesus has been there, and he is there with you now. Third contrast, Caesar's way of bringing salvation and peace to the world was by crushing his enemies. Jesus brought salvation through being crushed by his enemies. It says he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Just think about that for a minute. You know, that God should become obedient to anything is, is shocking. That God should become obedient to death is just unthinkable. It's unfathomable. Death on a cross the death of a slave, the death of a criminal, a death of disgrace and shame. Scandalous. It's utterly scandalous, but that's what he did. And he did it because he saw that we live in this broken world that is in dire need of peace and it's in dire need of salvation. You can trace all of that back to Adam in the garden for whom actually equality with God was something to be grasped. He did want to get on hold of that power and be equal with God. But then along comes Jesus, the second Adam, this perfect man, He comes along and his way is so different from man's ways. His way is so different from Caesar's way. He's willing to let go of equality with God. He doesn't see it as something to cling on to, this power and grasp hold of power. He doesn't see it as something to use for his own own ends, for his own gain, for his own advantage. He's willing to let go of that because he sees a world of suffering and injustice and pain. And he comes and he takes all of it upon himself. All the suffering, all the injustice, all the pain, the sin of the world, the cause of all of our brokenness, the full wrath of God he takes upon himself at the cross. And this is where humility comes. Because there's no room for any pride at the cross. Our pride becomes ridiculous at the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I'm a sinner and that nothing but the cross can save me, I'm humble to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility 
Pride is gone at the cross. Humility comes at the cross of Christ. We need to fill ourselves with that, gaze at that. Humility comes at the cross of Christ because it's there that we realize the world does not revolve around me. It all revolves around him. But praise God, the story doesn't end there because Jesus didn't stay on the cross, did he? He rose. He rose from the dead. Sin and death are not ultimately victorious. So Paul goes on to say this. Therefore, because he humbled himself, because of this death on the cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is like shooting an arrow right into the heart of this Roman gospel. Jesus, the slave. Jesus, the one who voluntarily chose to humble himself. He chose to go down all the rungs of the ladder. And because he did that, he gets exalted to the highest place. Down is up in God's kingdom. He gets exalted to the highest place, far higher than Caesar, because he gets to sit at the right hand of the Father. The ultimate place of honor, the ultimate place of glory, the ultimate place of status. Why? Because he didn't consider that position something to be grasped, to cling on to. He was willing to let go of that for us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I said before, names, titles are really, really important in that society. Signs of status, signs of honor. And it says that Jesus is given the name that is above every name. Every name. Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, not a chance. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, this changes the way we think about everything. It changes the way we think about power and status and honor. Because we tend to spend our lives trying to fill ourselves with glory and end up feeling empty. But Jesus, who had true glory, emptied himself of that so that we could be eternally full. It's just glorious. It's totally upside down to the way we think. We spend our lives looking to the situations, to the people around us for affirmation, for for the ultimate verdict that we do count. My life does count. I am important. I I am significant. It's kind of like we put ourselves on trial every day, hoping to get that verdict without realizing that because Jesus went on trial instead, the verdict is already in. It's already been decided, and the decision is that the only person whose opinion in the whole universe really counts, he looks at you and finds you to be the most significant, the most important, the most beautiful, the most precious thing in the universe, more precious than any earthly thing you could find. That's the verdict because of Jesus. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to this, what we've, what we've looked at today in this passage? Do we go away from here and try and make ourselves more humble, try and be better? Well, you can't. It doesn't, just doesn't work like that. We can't do that. The only, that only happens by filling our vision with Jesus in all of his glory. By having him in front of us. Only then do we reflect him to the world. Only then do we reflect his ways to the world, which are so different to the ways of man. Let me finish with this illustration. It's a story told by an author called Donald Miller. And it's about an American soldier, a Navy SEAL, who was part of a covert operation to free some hostages. So it says, the team flew in by helicopter and they made their way to the compound and stormed into the room where the hostages had been imprisoned for months. The room was filthy and dark. The hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified. 
When the soldiers entered the room, they heard the gasps of the hostages. They stood at the door, called to the prisoners, telling them, we're American soldiers, and they asked the hostages to follow them, but the hostages wouldn't. They just sat there on the floor and hid their eyes in fear. They were not of healthy mind, and they didn't believe their rescuers were really American soldiers. The soldiers stood there not knowing what to do. They couldn't possibly carry everybody out of there. And one of them had an idea. He put down his weapon, he took off his helmet, and he curled up tightly next to one of the hostages, getting so close that his body was touching some of theirs. He softened the look on his face, and he put his arms around them. He was trying to show them that he was one of them. None of the prison guards would have done this. And he stayed there for a little while until some of the hostages started to look at him, finally meeting his eyes. And the soldier whispered that they were American soldiers and they were there to rescue them. Will you follow us? He said. And he stood up to his feet and one of the hostages stood up with him. And then another and then another until all of them were willing to go and follow them into freedom. Our God is not like Caesar. I think sometimes we, 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 I think, sometimes we think of him a bit like that. He doesn't come with the crushing power of Rome. He doesn't impose himself. He doesn't impose his peace on the world. He doesn't impose his love on the world. He's the one who came close to us when we were in darkness, when we were in bondage. We were like the hostage. He's the one who came close to us. He's the one who drew near to us in love, in humility, in sacrifice. And he whispers to us, will you follow me? He whispers to you, will you follow me? This is our God. This is our Jesus. So let us draw near to him. Amen.